Welcome to the Apocalypse Podcast. This is an online Bible study of the book of Revelation as taught by Pastor Andy Kroll. You can find more resources online at www.thepulpiteer.com backslash revelation. I'm going to go ahead and open us up in prayer. Let's uh, go ahead and bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance to gather here. We thank you for um, just the space and, and thank you so much for your word. And we pray, Lord, that it would open our eyes so that we could see um, how you are moving uh, in, in the world around us and in us and what you're calling us to. And I pray, Lord, that, um, that you would use this book to call us to faithful living in the midst of a fallen world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, craziest thing you read? The Scarlet Whore. Yes, yeah. The Bible just kept saying whore all over the place. And I just, yeah. <laughs> what else? Scarlet Beast. What else is strange? It's, yeah, it's nice how you've been so conditioned by just bizarreness that, yeah. People just roll with it, yeah. <laughs> Everyone will treat you as normal, and then the guests will just think, I've walked into a cult. <laughs> well, I want you to think about the, uh, uh, hang on to the... Um, what this description might mean. I think that now we've got uh, today uh, and then two days. We're off next week on account of Thanksgiving. Then we'll have two classes that'll be like regular classes to go through the last four chapters. And then the final class will be just in case we have like a snow day because the school's canceled, although we're not in a federal lab right now, but it is November, December. Um, if school's canceled, then we canceled class that particular day. So we've got a buffer day for that or to just um, to kind of wrap up. And, and I hope we can use it to wrap up because I just would be curious to hear back from you um, kind of what you've taken from this. But as we are in chapter 17 and 18, we're getting towards the end. And I think that um, you may find you, you may be kind of getting used to Maybe not the particular symbolism, but the fact that we have symbolism and, and how that plays out. And, and I think uh, to be thinking of, um, even when I ask this question, what might this description have meant to the original readers? I think you're getting used to questions like that and, and kind of wondering uh, how that plays out. So hopefully this book is um, making a little more sense. Uh, I, I know it's always challenging. It's going to be challenging, but... Um, I think it's a good thing that the Bible isn't something like a children's book where you can read it through once in like a 10-minute sitting and just know exactly what's going on. I mean, I think there's something to this study in it and, and that is pointing to wonders and mysteries that, are, that take a little while to chew on. So um, I'm going to start with this. We've got this, um, oh shoot, I thought I had a question here. Well, I do in my notes, so I'm going to ask you a question. 
There's a, there's a quote. It's in, um, I think it's in your pages, in your handout by Craig Coaster. And he said that John did not make such sharp contrast because the distinction between good and evil was obvious to his readers. And one of the things we're going to look at is how um, Babylon the harlot is contrasted with the bride of New Jerusalem. So there's this big contrast, Babylon the harlot and the bride of New Jerusalem. And John is, is holding up that contrast as he's sharing this vision. And Dr. Coaster is pointing out he's not holding up the contrast because it was obvious for the people living in that time. And so one of the things that ought to make us pause is as the people were receiving this, this would be something that would make them think and challenge them how to live faithful lives. Um, Because you remember back in chapters 2 and 3, the letters written to the seven churches, was it obvious to them what faithful living and not faithful living was? Were all the churches just obviously going the right path? And so part of what he's doing is he's writing a word that challenges people and comforts people. Challenges people that have bought into the idolatry and comfort people that are being persecuted because of their faithful living. Now the people who bought into the idolatry, they had their reasons. It wasn't, I think it was, uh, there was the motivation of physical safety and economic provision. But I think they also could talk themselves into it well, it's not a big deal, or we can worship Jesus and fill in the blank. And so my assumption is kind of this. If it wasn't, if the idols of the day were not immediately obvious to the people then, what if the idols of our day are not immediately obvious to us? And so John writes this letter to talk about um, Babylon the harlot. And he's doing that with a great big contrast And maybe that contrast is supposed to make us kind of look at the um, political and economic and social structures around us and ask, is this like the harlot or is this like the bride? So that it helps us open our eyes. Again, I think Revelation is supposed to help us see the world differently. Um, Do we ever buy into the world's fallen values? It's easy to do, isn't it? And values about um, what we're worth and who we are and how you measure success and how you measure failure, um, stuff like that. This assimilation with the world's values, if you look at chapter 17, verse 2, it says she's the, the whore who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and with the wine of whose fornication the inhabitants of the earth has become, have become drunk. So assimilating to the world's values, what's that described as? There's two ways to describe it there. Fornication, which is slightly better than fivenication, but it's still bad. <laughs> and drunkenness. So there's this element of seduction, Do the world's um, idolatrous values seduce you? 
And there's also um, drunkenness is, some of it's making you not right in the head. And do the world's values ever impair your judgment? And so it's described this, uh, these are both, um, fornication and drunkenness are both, uh, in a lot of ways, seductive things. So in chapter 18, then, we see that material prosperity and security uh, are offered by Babylon, and the people become drunk on that promise of material prosperity and security. The destructive, idolatrous influence is not resisted because they're seduced by the security and prosperity. Since they're seduced by the security and prosperity, they turn their heads with the idolatry. I wonder what in our world promises us security. Our government does, which is why we spend more on military spending than the next nine or ten nations combined. Money, right? Which is, um, uh, you know, money can be, money's a tool, so for good or for bad. But can people use money as a way to secure their future? In fact, that's what every financial advisor tells you, right? Can money secure your future? I have a 34-year-old sister-in-law that just dropped dead one night. There's nothing secures your future. Now, should you be wise? I think you should be wise. But an idol is, is taking a good thing and making it a God thing. What promises us... Um, well, we'll think about this as we go. I want to kind of close with those sort of questions because I'm, I'm convinced that I'm convinced that the idols of that time, people were kind of blind to them, and so it suckered them in, which makes me think maybe they just weren't a bunch of idiots, but maybe there's something about the human condition where we get suckered in by idols. And so this vision is kind of blaring this contrast. The sin, then, is accepting Rome as the point of orientation for life in this world. Um, Rome being a god. Accepting Rome is the point of orientation for life in this world. Rome is how I understand existence. And we can do that with all sorts of stuff. Uh, Rome is, and so that's the sin, is putting something in God's place. All right, now we'll get into the contrasting women. And I think you've got this handout in your um, materials. And this will come out even more, I guess, as you read the next couple chapters. But there's the, the bride of the New Jerusalem and then the harlot on many waters. Um, the woman is also seen, there's also kind of a contrast with the, the woman in chapter 12. So the woman in chapter 12, what's going on with her? Who's chasing her? The dragon's chasing her. Is he chasing her because he wants to give her a hug or what's going on? Give her a hug with, her, with his mouth or something. Yeah, he wants to eat her baby. He's chasing her and, and then uh, pursuing and making war on her children. So on the one hand, you've got this woman who uh, I, I would argue represents the faithful people of God that are being chased and by, the, by the dragon. This woman in chapters 17 and 18, how is she, what's going on with her and the beast? 
What's she doing in regards? Is the beast chasing her? She's riding the beast. So here we have this contrast, right? This, the dragon who gives us power to the beast. So there's this carryover here. In the one, you have the dragon meaning harm to the woman chasing her around. In the other, you have the woman perched on top of this hideous beast. So the contrast kind of begins there. Um, so you have in chapter 21, verses 2 and 9, the woman as the chaste bride, the wife of the lamb. And in the, verses, in the part that we read, 17.2, she's the whore with whom the kings of the earth fornicate. So there's a pretty graphic contrast, right? The chaste bride, the whore who fornicates with the kings of the earth. Um, New Jerusalem's splendor is the glory of God. Babylon's splendor is from exploiting her empire. The nations walk by New Jerusalem's light, which is the glory of God, in chapter 21. Babylon's corruption and deception of the nations is shown in, in 17, 18. So New Jerusalem is a light to the world from the glory of God. Babylon deceives the world. The kings of the earth bring their glory to New Jerusalem. Babylon rules over the kings of the earth. Uncleanness, abomination, and falsehood are excluded in the New Jerusalem. Babylon's abominations, impurities, and deceptions are shown several times throughout there. In fact, I think that's what Babylon calls a cocktail. I'm not sure. The water of life and the tree of life are for the healing of the nations in chapter 21-22. Babylon's wine makes the nations drunk. So one's out for the healing of the nations. One makes the nations drunk. There's life and healing in 22, verses 1 and 2, versus the blood of slaughter in 17, 6, and 18, 24. God's people are called to enter New Jerusalem in 22. God's people are called to come out of Babylon in 18, 4. New Jerusalem is the mother of the faithful. Well, this is actually in chapter 12. The, the woman who's being chased is the mother of the faithful who keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus versus the mother of whores and abominations in chapter 17, 5. New Jerusalem has the glory of God like a rare jewel in 21 versus being adorned in gold and jewels and pearls in 17.4. So one is the glory of God is the jewelry, the other is the jewels. Uh, one uh, In 19.8 we have New Jerusalem wearing bright pure linen versus being clothed in purple and scarlet. And then finally um, being delivered, the, the woman is delivered in chapter 12 and what happens to Babylon? She's destroyed. So John isn't, he isn't being subtle, is he? Like, you see these contrasts, and these are pretty stark contrasts. Why would he do that? Why would this vision do that? What purpose is it, sir? Make it more clear. Because if we, when I began, I said, I'm, I'm, maybe if the people were confused by the idols, then we might be now. Well, if you're confused by idolatry, what's, what's John showing? Something to make it clear. That giving into Rome and worshiping the Caesar was something that wasn't good. And we get into um, caricatures and cartoons. So... What's going on here, again, is you have um, 
Rome looked seductive and powerful. It says in a few places, I mean, with the beast, that people were in awe of the beast. And then here, um, that people are in awe of, of the beast or of the harlot. And, and so Rome looks seductive and powerful, and how can we fight against this? And so one of the things that this vision is going to do, the imagination is a powerful thing, and, and it's kind of how we understand and process things is a powerful thing. So what this vision is going to do is, is going to do this caricature of Rome. And uh, it's the, the kind of the nearest parallel we have would be like a political cartoon. So I found some political cartoons. So if you were to show this to someone from Asia Minor in the first century, even if you translated the words, would they understand what's going on? No. Say, who's the fat dude with the striped hat? Well, who is that? Uncle Sam. Well, who's Uncle Sam? Oh, so we have an uncle. Okay, so the literalist would say at some point there's going to be a fat guy that's an uncle that's going to come back and stand on scales. Well, that's not what this is saying, right? What is... They wouldn't even know scales. That's true. Yeah, they'd look at the spending and wonder how we spent money with our feet. That's why I'm barefoot this morning. Um, So we have this bloated country that's bloated on... Spending, right? And then the president sitting on a budget. So this political cartoon has a bunch of symbols, and where the symbols are a little unclear, the political cartoonist does a nice job of labeling for us. Here's another one. And so they would think, in the first century Asia Minor, they would think, um, in the 21st century, elephants can talk. So what's this going on here? What's this about? What's the elephant mean? Republicans, yeah. And so what, uh, what political conversation piece is this? It's the whole thing with the war on women, right? And, and so this is... Uh, so one of the things I did there, I hope you noticed, was there was one like more Republican cartoon and one Democratic cartoon, right? Isn't that neat how... There's some from both sides. You know, so here's one of the things, though. Let's say, so if you're a, a, a Democrat and you see the Republican side of cartoon, what does that do? What feelings do you have? It gets you, doesn't it? Which just may be the point, right? In fact, the cartoons can probably get you in a way that um, a paragraph wouldn't. And then you think, well, but that, no, that's not what they mean, you know. And, but what this is supposed to do is capture our imagination and help us see things differently. Well, John, <coughs> excuse me, in sharing this vision, is sharing a, a caricature of Rome. Rome seems to be invincible and all that stuff, right? And, and this um, kind of beautiful city of all this wealth and riches and you get the peace from Rome that the Caesar gives, who's, by the way, the son of a god, and all of this stuff. Well, um, political cartoons, uh, they, well, the, these visions that we're seeing there seek to show people something in a way they would not normally see it. And if people can be persuaded to think that what appears impressive is actually ridiculous, what seems glamorous is actually garish, and what appears desirable is, in fact, ludicrous, they'll be more ready to resist it. And so, 
you were supposed to think of Rome as this dignified lady, but is she portrayed as a dignified lady? She's portrayed as a whore. I said whore so many times in church. This, this is... So purple and... Anybody have a guess at that? What do the purple and scarlet mean? <laughs> the red... red <laughs> like the, the red light district? No. Uh, colors do mean something, right? So yeah, right. but purple and scarlet were the, the colors of the ruling class, royalty. Yep. So she was supposed to be a dignified lady, but she's portrayed as, as a harlot or, or as a whore. She's supposed to be, you would think she was this virtuous woman, but she's actually drunk. You would think that um, if you're going to portray this magnificent lady, Rome, Roma, riding something it would be this magnificent stallion but instead she's riding this outrageous seven-headed beast you'd think she'd have if she had a golden cup full of something you'd think probably the finest wine but it's full of like vile sewage um and you find out this pretentious lady is actually a buffoon there was a i looked for this um graphic but i couldn't find it because there was um, Rome was known as the city on seven hills, and John is showing her as the city on seven-headed beast. And there was this um, graphic that had the contrast between that, and I couldn't remember where I found that. And you really have to be careful when you type in whore on a beast in your internet search. <laughs> so I couldn't, I couldn't pull that one up. But there was this graphic that showed kind of uh, an old depiction of um, how the Romans portrayed Roma on the seven hills, and it was this it was an older one, but it was um, it kind of showed a stateliness on the seven hills as this depiction of their country and then it showed what revelation was describing as and I think it had like this overweight prostitute drunk with jewels flying all over on the seven headed beast with garbage spilling out of her cup that is on purpose, and it 's not subtle. Like, John wasn't hiding a secret coded message. Any idiot would have been able to see through that because Rome was known as the, the city on seven hills. And so what he's doing is he's opening the eyes, or God is, you know, through the Holy Spirit, opening the eyes of the people who read this to say, look, this world power that you think is so magnificent and mighty and all that is not and kind of helping them to see reality differently. Coaster writes, and I thought this was interesting, so the picture in chapter 12, like, so if you're the church trying to figure out how to kind of manage through this time, if you're God's faithful people, chapter 12 tells you that you're like the woman in the wilderness being pursued by the beast. And that's scary, and it also leaves them outside of the social mainstream. I mean, it's, it's, it's probably important to emphasize, it's not just the physical threat of death, but it's also, you're not a good Roman citizen, and so we're going to just lock you out of societal structures. So they found themselves on society outside looking in. They're like that woman being chased in the wilderness, but the alternative is to cozy up to a debauched prostitute and her pet beast. And so he's showing these, he's trying to show things as they are. Like, I know it's, I know it's rough, 
to be on the outside looking in. I know it's rough to feel like this world is never your home. I know it's rough that every time you try and be faithful, there's something that cuts back against that. I know it's rough to have threats against you. I know it's rough to suffer economically because of your faithfulness. I know it's rough to not just go with whatever your neighbor says is cool. I know it's difficult. But this world, this fallen world, is not our home. And the alternative is to compromise ourselves in ways that, that John is showing us is, are, are not attractive at all. He's showing us revelation, even though it uses these like goofy imagery, it's showing us the way things really are. Rome is not this glorious good thing that gives peace on earth. Rome is this prostitute that's drunk off the blood of the saints. This is what reality is. All right, the symbolism from the prostitute on many waters and the beast. So uh, the prostitute then is, is Rome. The beast is described, oh, in verse 8. The one that was and is not and is about to ascend from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Who does that sound, who does that sound like it's echoing? Was and is and is to come, right? And so we've got this, uh, it kind of echoes that, but it echoes it in a way that's not, not quite right. It's, yeah, it's a, a playoff. And one of the things that's showing is that evil is a cheap imitation of goodness. The other thing, who was and who is not, instead of was and is, well, that is not shows that something significant happened. What was it significant that happened that would be the is not of the beast or of the dragon? The cross. The cross. Cross and resurrection of Christ, who was and is not. And then Jesus, um, Jesus ascended. And why did Jesus ascend? We've, so in, in the uh, Apostles' Creed, right? I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, the only Son, our Lord, seen by the Holy Spirit. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. Third day he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, sit at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from thence you come. Okay, why does he ascend to sit at the right hand? To rule. And then he's going to return. Why does the beast descend from the pit? To be judged. Like, what's the opposite of to rule? He's going to be judged, he's going to be ruled. And so even in this description, it's this kind of brilliant description that is almost doing the same thing the political cartoon did. Is it showing things for what they are. That evil is just a cheap mockery of good and it's not even... Evil is not as bad as God is good. But nonetheless, we find out that those who have not, whose names have not been written in the book of life they will be amazed when they see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So even though the reality is that this beast is defeated, it's still seductive and it still seduces um, the inhabitants of the earth. The symbolism uh, carries on. I already covered the city on seven hills as a clear reference to Rome. Um, And then the seven heads... This was kind of weird. The, the seven heads, what are the seven heads? Oops. Seven heads are seven hills, but they're also seven kings. 
And then the seven kings, five who are fallen, one who, who was, one who is living, and one is yet to come. But only for a little while, because then he ascends for his destruction. Oh, that's uh, tying it into the was and is not. Um, so then we have to ask, well, does this mean... So historians have looked over that and tried to figure out, okay, if these are the, the seven kings, that would mean the Caesars of, of Rome. And actually, if you go to your... Oh, shoot, I didn't bring my book. There it is. Um, if you go to your timeline... And so we cut in kind of partway through there. And we're going to look at the uh, Caesars, or the emperors, because we're going to try and figure out um, who was. Does anybody know who was Caesar before Tiberius? Who was Caesar during when Jesus was born? Augustus. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who was Caesar before Augustus? Julius. So here's the thing. Where do you start? Do you start with Augustus or do you start with Julius? Well, if you start with Augustus, then Augustus, Tiberius, Gaius, or Caligula, um, Claudius, and Nero, that would be five. And then you've got that uh, year of four emperors with Galba, Otho, Vitilius. So five, then um, the one who is, be Galba, be six. The one who is to come, but only for a short while, be Otho. Both of those guys ruled just a short time. And then an eighth who belonged to the seven, Vitilius. But then Vespasian comes. And so do you do that, or do you go back to... Julius, and then count through the five, and then get on to the seventh, and then the eighth, or do you do, and so, long story, to make a long story boring, um, we, they've gone through and like try to figure out all of these combinations as to which ones are the five, and then the, then the one who is, and the one who will come for a little while, and there's a lot of different ideas about it, uh, but not one consensus that kind of fits perfectly. So, it may be just something that would have made sense to them. Maybe they just would have figured it out that we start with Augustus and go on. Maybe that would make sense. Or maybe um, seven is a symbolic number. And other things came in cycles of sevens. And so it's just showing this cycle of completion, these kings going through and ruling for a while, and then the eighth belonging to the seven. Um, After the kings come the ten horns, and 10 is a number that also shows completion, like 10 commandments, that sort of thing. Um, this shows the completeness of the power that was to come because the 10 horns are the, the ones who have not yet received a kingdom. So is that possibly talking about the emperors who were going to come? And the things that were going to come after the seven emperors, or the eight actually, that were there. And so um, it's talking about the rulers, how exactly that applies to the specific ones that are there. I'm not sure how important that is other than to say John's talking about those Caesars that are that are ruling and what do the horns do what's their stance towards the lamb they well eventually everybody is aren't they but they wage war 
Yeah, and, and verse 14, 17, 14, they make war on the Lamb, but the Lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. So again, if you are following Christ, who is the Lamb, and these Caesars are rising up that are calling themselves God or the sons of God, and they are putting in these policies that are um, out to get you, and you think, well, maybe Rome's not that bad. But here it says, no, Rome is making war on the Lamb. It's not true that they're not that bad. They're out to kill you. They're out for, they're out for your destruction. And by the way, if you want to pick the winning side, it's not Rome. The winning side is who? Jesus, the Lamb. Because if you're worried about this king, don't worry because there is one who is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. So again, this is a way to to call people out and encourage them uh, to live faithful lives. And then they turn, after they make war on the lamb, what do the ten horns do towards the whore? They use her up. Yeah. They strip her naked. What, what was she dressed in again? Purple and red, so signs of royalty. So they strip her naked, which is not only removing her royalty, but also um, the shaming and abusing. And then they um, devour her. And they also burn her with fire. So what does evil do to itself? Evil destroys itself. Evil always contains within itself the seed of its own destruction. If you are someone who destroys, then you're going to destroy. If you're someone who rules by power and threat, then that's just kind of the reality in which you're going to live. And so eventually, um, in this world where, where they devour other peoples, where they um, chew up and spit out human beings, when they're not afraid to threaten people on pain of death to worship them, it turns out that when you set up that sort of scenario, at some point it can turn back on you. Evil contains within itself the seeds of its own destruction. And so the horns um, strip her naked and devour her, contrasted with God, God who we find out clothes his people. God who creates and not devours. And instead of scorching, um, the smoke is the prayers of the saints, so God's people are not scorched. Chapter 7, we hear that. And again, that kind of points out the nature of evil. All evil can do is steal and kill and destroy. It strips off garments. It doesn't give garments. It devours. It can't create. And it says because God put it in their heart. So this is, uh, it just gets back to the way things work. Um, this is kind of like when we talked about wrath and chaos and that stuff last week. That the nature of, of evil and God's wrath, like when we looked at Romans 1, God uh, showed his wrath against them by turning them over, Remember? turning them over. So God hands them over, and God's wrath plays out as the natural consequences of what they do and the realities they create consume them. Well, it's the same thing that's happening here. That's, you were made for a relationship with God. 
when you rebel against that, it is self-destructive. The destroyers get destroyed. And uh, for, let's see, Dr. Mulholland writes that for John, the woman represents the malignant spiritual realm of rebellion against God. Malignant is a good word there. Because that brings to mind what? Cancer. Evil is the cancer spreading. And, and what does cancer do to the host? And cancer is made up of cells of the host, right? And what does it do? Consumes it. That's, that's a great picture of evil. Evil consumes itself. Um, it's a malignant spiritual realm uh, of rebellion against God, which in his day was incarnate in the Roman Empire. So again, what purpose does this portrayal serve? Why is, why is this portrayal here? Yeah, there's this real big, and this one of the, it's a contrast throughout Revelation, isn't it? I mean, we've hit on in the sermons or uh, in the in the Bible study that there's this citizens of the New Jerusalem, citizens of fallen Babylon, and there's this contrast, and it's where things got gray and and kind of mushy, and they weren't sure, and they kind of compromised into idolatry. John's trying to just kind of draw the line and say, no, there's you need to live faithful lives to a Lamb, uh, come out of come out of her, come out of uh, fallen Babylon. Get into Revelation 18. And so 17 kind of tells about this uh, vision, and then 18, you get this. It's like written in poetry through most of the chapter, isn't it? And so you get what, what results to a funeral dirge. Um, and Dr. Coaster compares this to Dickens' Christmas Carol, which is, I think, kind of a cool comparison. So he says, uh, in, with uh, Christmas Carol, when Scrooge goes to the... Uh, it's where the ghost of Christmas future comes, Scrooge finds out somebody's died, right? And how, what, how are people reacting to the death of this person? They could care less. Some of them are joyful. What are they doing with this stuff? They're selling his bed curtains and all this stuff, right? And so all of the emotion, there's no emotion for the person itself. And then he ends up seeing the grave, and of course, the person who died was him. And what was the purpose of showing him that future? They have to to have some, to inspire some sort of change. So, if you're somebody along for the ride in fallen Babylon, and just kind of going along with the culture's idols, compromising yourself because it's more comfortable, just falling in line with the fallen world. Through this vision, you're shown the funeral dirge. You're like Scrooge, seeing the death of things. And it's supposed to inspire in us this desire to say, hey, wait, couldn't this change? Couldn't we live a faithful life? Um, So the goal of this funeral is to inspire a similar realignment of commitment from people to follow God. So verse 2 says, let's see, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It's become a dwelling place of demons. Sounds like a good time, right? Again, I just, just think of, you just got to like think about the, the contrast that's going on here. 
This is the great Rome, all roads lead to Rome, was the Pax of Romana, the, the peace of Rome brought to you by Caesar himself. This is, the world, this is the world power of all world powers, the great city Rome. He's saying it's the home of demons. Um, and we'll come back to the demonic stuff in a second. It also says it's the haunt, and, and Dr. Mulholland writes it's the prison of foul spirits, foul birds, foul and hateful beasts. So it's kind of this threefold foulness. So it's the home of this stuff. Uh, verse 3 then talks about all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxury. And so um, the kings and the merchants, if you look at that, we have the political powers and economic powers. They've compromised and sold out to Babylon. So Babylon attracts political and economic power. And then we get to the key verses. Um, the key verses from, from chapter 18 are really ch- verses 4 and 5. Another verse from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you don't take part in her sins, so that you don't share in her plagues. For her sins have heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. What is God's desire for his people? That they would come out. Do you think it means to... Um, does that mean that we need to build our own fortress and become a cult? When he's talking about come out, he's not talking about necessarily spatially coming out. But there's a whole set of values and ways you view the world and all of that stuff. And he's saying you need to come out from that. The way the world tells you what your worth is, like that can't be how you see things. The way the world tells you value of other people, that can't be the way that you see things. You know, the way the world tells you what success is, that can't be the way you see things. There's a whole way of the fallen world. And, it's, and, and especially seems to affect political power and economic power. And you're just not supposed to, this is not supposed to be the way things are for you. And so we're called to come out. And that's kind of the, the central verses for this. It's similar to um, being called out of Egypt. So the Jewish people are called out of Egypt. And then here's the whole thing. They get out into the wilderness, and what do they want to do? They want to go back. And you get the feeling that they're kind of remembering things better than what they were. Like, oh, our stomachs were always full of meat, and we had good things to eat. And you think, well, you were slaves. <laughs> but we do that, don't we? We want to go back to the familiar, um, even if it's not good for us. And I think the, the Egypt analogy is also appropriate because um, we are in bondage or slavery to sin. And, and certainly the values, the values of this fallen world keep us in bondage. They, they just do. We may not see the chains. Well, this is another good Christmas carol analogy, right? Because yeah. uh, find out that Marley had all these chains around him that he had made for himself. We have three groups of mourners that we find. The kings weep and wail in verses 9 and 10. Um, and they weep and wail. Are they, where do they stand as they weep and wail? Far away. So from a distance, like, oh, man, that's really too bad. We were in charge there, too. Right? Are they really sad for Babylon and the people inside? They had power, and now that's 
gone someplace else. Then um, the next group is the merchants. The merchants weep and mourn. Are they sad about people, about Babylon? Why are they sad? They can't sell their stuff. And then we get this amazing list of the, the things that they sell, their cargo. We find it in verse 12 and 13. Uh, and you have this 28 different things listed there. 28 for you math people. What's 28 a product of? Four and seven, right? Seven is this perfect number. Four is uh, with creation. So in other words, so if, if four represents creation and seven represents some sort of entirety or wholeness, what's this really saying? What do they use? What do they market? Everything. They market everything. Do we market everything? And what's the last thing? What's the kicker? Human souls. Do we sell human souls? One, as I was wrestling with this, one of the... I, I meant to look this up. I ran out of time. I, I'm curious, though, the... I guess I'll phrase it this way. What if all Americans and Western Europeans stopped paying for prostitution with sex slaves, what would happen to that industry? It would be at least significantly smaller. Which is disturbing, because that means that you and I exist in a culture that keeps afloat an industry that kidnaps children and other people as slaves for sex. That's a part of you and I's reality. We live in that place. Like people from our country, our fellow citizens, travel overseas to Cambodia to have sex with children. And Michigan is, yeah, we've got, uh, uh, yeah, we've got the, 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 in the corridor, the 94 corridor, the sex slavery. And so we live in, in a place that supports the buying and selling of human souls. Um, I, I think the, um, that's why I get kind of weepy and emotional about um, the whole way we view sex because I don't think they're disconnected. I think if you continually put before a people that other people's bodies are for your consumption, lo and behold people are going to arrive at the conclusion that other, people bo- other people's bodies are for my consumption. Does that make sense? You continually put pretty girls airbrushed on magazines with the ten ways to please your man. Eventually, people are going to arrive at the conclusion that that's what people are good for. And then what's the step from that to buying and selling people? Logistics, yeah, that's exactly right, right? A law. Somebody voted on something in uh, Congress someplace, but not someplace else. And so that's a part of our reality that, that we live in, where we buy and sell everything. And, and that's horrible. And, and God is calling... Yeah, they... Yeah... 
Yeah, and, and, and we do, we hold up, we hold up this unabashed hedonism, this chasing after pleasure at all costs to anybody else. And then we get shocked when people actually live that way. The problem is we're broken people. I mean, the problem is, this is, what's the power behind the beast? Or should I, who, who is the power behind the beast? Satan. That's the reason that these systems do what they do. And when you buy into these things, it's not, oh, lighten up, you're such a prude. It's that what if there's really something demonic behind that that wants us to buy and sell each other? Like, what if that's a real thing? Because guess what? There's more slaves now than there were in the 1800s. And so, God is calling us to come out. Because of Jesus Christ, we have to see the world differently. Heck, because of Genesis 1 through 3, we have to see the world differently. So anyway, uh, the, the merchants are grieving, not for any real loss, um, but because they can't buy or sell their cargo anymore. Um, and then finally, the sailors in verses 17b through 19, second half of 17 through 19, they mourn because everybody who did sea cargo stuff had gotten rich from Babylon. And so that's just the, the I don't know, kind of the economic, um, the, the, the ocean was like the super highway for them to do shipping and trade and stuff. So everybody's sad Babylon fell, but are they sad for Babylon or are they sad for themselves? And do they stand in the midst of Babylon as it falls? And so you almost get this picture of um, they stand far off, Babylon falls, but is, Babylon, is Rome the last incarnation of fallen Babylon? No. So they kind of wait for the next one to rise up, and then what do they do? Go use her. Right? And uh, Dr. Mulholland gave these wonderful examples of that. It was, uh, I think it was Bulgaria. He said, when communism fell there, all of the communists stepped back, the government fell, they relabeled themselves social democrats, and they ran for election and won again. So that was his example of the kings and the authorities, the people in power, step back, let it fall, step back into the new system and take power again. Fascinating that in our presidential race right now, we have a Bush and a Clinton yet again. And there, well, it, but there, it, it's, there's a ruling class on, on each side, and, and you're not it. Um, along with that, um, the, the, well, let me get to that later. There's some stuff I was thinking about later. Um, the saints and apostles and prophets, though, do they weep? They're called to rejoice. They're called to rejoice. Because in Babylon was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and all who have been slaughtered on earth. So there's no sadness for Babylon there. And the question is really, where does your heart lie? Does your heart lie in the new Jerusalem or does it lie in the fallen Babylon? And Babylon's going to fall. And so it's kind of like, oh, who was it that said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also? Yeah. It's kind of like that, isn't it? And so here's just another picture of that. All right. So 
oh, I was supposed to put this up during the discussion of Scrooge. Jeez, I'm way off on my PowerPoint. Such a horrible, unprofessional presenter tonight. I apologize. So here's the thing I wrestle with with this. Revelation I find to be an incredibly challenging book for for me personally. Um, And one of the things that challenges me is, and these chapters really do it, is there are political and economic systems that I am a part of that are fallen Babylon. And I'm called to come out of that. And so I have to ask myself, as a person trying to faithfully follow Christ, what am I supporting with my time and finances and energy that are systems that are working contrary to the kingdom of God? In other words, I wonder, where do we see the dragon and the beast at work around us? Now, one of the things I just brought up, the sex slave industry, and and even our society's view on sex and sexuality as the commodification of other people. When we view other people as a product for us to consume, um, I think that's playing into uh, the beast. That's how it works, because the merchants buy and sell human souls. Dr. Coaster writes, when... The harlot's arrogance, violence, and obsession with luxury are described more fully in Revelation 18. Modern readers will find themselves confronting forces that are not to uh, belong to a forgotten age, but to the world that they know. As we see these things that they wrestle uh, that are condemned in chapter 18, if you really pay attention, all of a sudden it doesn't sound like 1,900 years ago on the other side of the world, but realities that we wrestle with today. Um, Dr. Mulholland writes, there's a historical continuity of incarnations of fallen Babylon. Because Babylon is the mother of, of all horrors, is what it said. Meaning that Rome has children. Um, and it's leading all the way to structures that we know today, including materialistic capitalism, equally materialistic socialism, hedonistic values, and aberrant lifestyles. Do we have social structures that marginalize some people while elevating others? If you're a celebrity, which I don't know is really a good thing, you can pay me enough. If you're a celebrity, you get a different sort of attention, don't you? Good and bad. Like it's kind of messed up. That marginalizes some people while elevating others. Do we have political structures that become instruments of special interests to impose control? Hmm. Think about this. What gives you more control? Your one vote or being the head of a special interest lobby? You know that, right? In fact, if I could get every single person that steps foot in this church to vote exactly how I would vote... Who would have more power, me or the head of a special interest lobby? Not Andy. That's, that's our political structure. That's the reality in which we live. All right. um, oh, who has more control? A single person from the House of Representatives or the head of a political inter- or special interest lobby? That's insane, isn't it? That's insane. So, therefore, the house, to belong to the House of Representatives, for example, no matter what your motives are, who do you have to listen to unless you don't want to be there next, in two years? Special interests. 
Now, I have no doubt that there are people there that legitimately want to listen to you. I have no doubt about that. I think there are people with the right motives that go into that. I don't think it matters what they think. That's just not the way the game's set up. Now, should they try and live out their faith and off? Absolutely. But the reality is, I'm looking at the system, and we have a broken system. Do we have economic structures that enrich wealthy and impoverish the poor? You know, one of the things that we should absolutely ban tomorrow are the, um, the cash checking places. There are Old Testament laws against that. We got a, a, somebody I know that um, ran into some financial trouble and went to a pretty shady car lot and, oh my goodness, the interest, where he could have bought like six cars by the time he was done. Now, is that a rich person problem or a poor person problem? Well, if you don't, what if you can't drive and you need a job? Because if you can't drive and you need a job, here's a story for you. I don't know if you've ever heard of Donald Trump. Anyone heard of him? There was an article, um, the National Journal did a piece where they examined what his net worth would be if he did nothing but invest the money he inherited from his dad. So if he just invested the money he inherited from his dad in a normal index fund, he would be worth the same or more than he's worth now with the investments that he's done. In other words, he's not a good investor. (laughs) He's tried and he's done worse than if he would have just sat and done nothing. He could have done nothing and done better than he's doing now. Does that make sense? Now, he has that luxury does a poor person have that luxury? And so we exist in an economic system that enriches the wealthy and impoverishes the poor. In fact, do you, I mean, do you think Donald Trump ever went to a cash quick now place? No. And he would say it'd be idiotic to go. Um, yet we live in a, a, a society that that's okay. Another thing that drives me nuts, I'll just step up on a soapbox. I can't, believe we, I can't believe our government runs a lottery. Who buys lottery tickets? Rich people? And then the lottery money is used to what? Fund the, yeah, supposed to fund the school. So what they did was they took that money and added it to the money already there, right? No. And so now it's a tax on the poor to fund the school system. Are there differences in the school system according to what the economic place is? So you're taxing the poor to fund a school that isn't as good for them. This is insane. And, and I've known people who have blown money on scratch-off tickets. And, and it's people that couldn't afford to lose money on scratch-off tickets. And it's not just a matter of, well, let people do what they want to do. You and I are part of a system that endorses that because that is our government. Our government of the people, by the people, for the people taxes the poor in that system. That's a part of our reality. That stuff bothers me. Um, And then there's this innate hostility towards New Jerusalem is another uh, uh, part of of how this, um, how this rub comes. Within this, then, as we're looking at these, these systems and the things I kind of wrestle with, 
um, the demons of fallen Babylon. So here's the question is, what's the center of your identity, value, meaning, and purpose? What's the center of your identity, your value, your meaning, and your purpose? Because there are different um, demonic forces in our world that tell you different stories about your identity, value, meaning, and purpose. If I want to know my identity scripturally, I would begin by saying I was created in the image of God. I am broken because I'm fallen in sin. But God so loved the world and me that he sent his son to die for me. What does that say about my value to God? And then 1 John 3 says, See how much the Father has loved us that we would be called what? Children of God. Identity, value, meaning, purpose. There's some very clear scriptural things about that. In our culture, though, we have demons of performance. Demon of performance would say, your identity is you are what you do. So if you get awards and ribbons and prizes, then you are worth more. That's your value. The demons of possessiveness says you are what? What you own, what you possess. The one who dies with the most toys wins. He's got a really cool house. Awesome. The demons of popularity say we are what other people think of us. I define myself based on how popular I am. And the demons of power say we are what we can control. So these are lies um, from the dragon into our systems. Which then brings us back to what do we rely upon for our security? And what do we rely upon for our fulfillment? Um, I'll give you, a, so I want you to think about um, where you see, so I'm going to tell kind of a, a story. But I want you to think about where do you see, where might you see the, the beast or the dragon at work in our context um, and the systems are kind of tricky there was uh, so the, the fastest one of the fastest growing areas for United Methodism does anybody know it's, it's not in America okay? and specifically the Democratic Republic of Congo anybody know what is special about the Democratic Republic of Congo it's, it's got, um, oh, what did I read? I read it on Wikipedia, so I don't know how, how accurate this is, but it's, it's, it's something like this. They have, uh, they have such wealth in minerals that they have, it said, like $24 trillion worth of wealth in their country, um, which is, it was, whatever the number was, it was more than the gross domestic product of America and Western Europe combined. So it's a significant amount of wealth. And these minerals that they mine, they're, well, I think, the second leading producer of diamonds. And, but most of the minerals that they have are minerals that are used for electronics. There's some specific minerals that are apparently really good for electronics and that are found mostly there. And so there's all of these um, mineral battles that are going on. 
Well, you would think that a country that was so wealthy in the minerals, how should their people be living? Probably well, right? But what happens is um, there's been all sorts of wars and and battles over the stuff. And what tends to happen is um, there's this term called, has anyone ever heard the term conflict resources? Conflict resources uh, is a term for a situation where You've got a country, a developing nation, that has these resources, and as the resources are mined, they're taken, and the money for the resources is funneled not to the people that are kind of on the bottom, but they're funneled back into people that fuel the war that's going on. And so what happens is the people, the resources are extracted from the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, and the war increases. In fact, has anyone ever heard of the African World War? There has been a couple major wars fought in the Democratic Republic of Congo over their minerals. And guess who loses out? All the people there, yeah. The, the people that are just the, just the Joshmo there. And so, here's the tricky thing. Unless I look at companies, there are comp- like Apple, I think, started doing this, selling conflict resource-free electronics. I'll have to check on that, but I believe I heard they did that. Um, Unless I do that, then I'm giving money, some of which may be used to continue to oppress people. So I benefit with the fact that I can hold a little supercomputer in my hand and somebody else's homeland gets torn up. And the thing I wrestle with, and so obviously, like, there's so many connections. How do you, there's so many connections, like, where do you start, right? And I get that. And I get that. But the thing that I have a hard time with is someday I'll be before Christ. And I'll have to explain why would I participate in a system that knowingly crushed my brothers and sisters. And I'm going to be honest with you, I don't, I don't know that there's really easy answers for how we are to live our lives other than maybe becoming more and more aware that there's not a neutral stance and that our consumption patterns have worldwide economic impact. And maybe what that means it's finding one area where you can address this in your life. Maybe it means buying fair trade coffee only instead of the other stuff. Yeah. Because that's one like obvious area where I can know I'm paying money that the people who pick the beans are going to get paired, paid a decent enough wage that they can live. Um, and fair trade coffee is, is... The thing that's good about that is at least that's out there, so you can make that choice. But it's hard to make that choice with computers and stuff. Another example of this is um, when I was in seminary, I collected uh, fish. I get into stuff, and I had these African cichlids. In fact, we had like six tanks, and I was breeding African cichlids, these beautiful fish, the freshwater fish from the uh, Rift Lakes in Africa. And the ones I had were especially from Lake Malawi, and um, these gorgeous and amazing fish. The, the females 
they'll, the male and the female will circle, and the female will lay eggs, the male will fertilize it, and the female will pick them up in her mouth, and she'll hold them in her mouth for like three weeks while the eggs hatch and then develop enough so that they can swim out of her mouth and like eat the food. It's incredible. And, and so you get these fish. Well, so I was in a, um, a, an environmental ethics course and had to do a project, so I thought, well, I'll do it on Lake Malawi, as I'm curious. Turns out in Lake Malawi, they've had an explosion in their population, and the, the villagers, the indigenous people that were fishing, were having trouble catching enough fish to feed people on lakeshore. On top of that, developed countries were harvesting fish from the lake to sell back to their developed countries. And so, um, and I think they're mostly European countries, but developed nations were harvesting fish and taking that resource out. And what happened was, there were, since they were taking the fish out, there were fewer fish for the people to eat. So they had to fish, and plus they were like in their big trawlers with nets and all this stuff, and they could fish deeper. So the little guys in canoes, they had to fish shallower and shallower, while the fish bred in shallower waters. What happens if you catch all the fish that are breeding? Fish disappear. So they have this choice. Do I starve today or starve tomorrow, Right? Not only that, but as they harvested those fish, the fish population went down, and there's uh, these snails that, that were in the water system that were hosts for this parasitic disease. So fish would normally eat the snails, but if there's less fish, that means what? More snails. More snails means more disease. More disease means more people get sick. And so the people in the industrialized nation that were eating all of Malawi's fish... We're adding to this system that was crushing the very people that were on the lake. And so it's, that's messed up, isn't it? And the, the fact of the matter is we just, we, we live in, in a world that's very interconnected. But when, when, the, when the dollar becomes the bottom line, the dollar will be the bottom line. And people and land won't. I'll pause there as I preached at you and you didn't bargain for that today. But All right, well, thanks for hanging in there with me. It's, uh, we'll go ahead and pray. It was, uh, I, I hope this gives you something to chew on, though. It's something that, um, that I wrestle with, and since I have to wrestle with it, you do too. Almighty God, um, you've called us to be faithful. But you've called us to be faithful um, not because you just want people who jump when you say jump, but because there's, there is a better way of living, and that's a, a way of living in relationship with you. And God, we confess to you that it is, there are some particular challenges to following you in our culture. I am, and, and we are tempted to find our security and our worth in other places and other things. Forgive us. We pray, God, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, not only would our eyes be opened, um, but that our hearts and our lives would be changed. So that as uh, citizens of the New Jerusalem, we would be a part of reflecting your light into the world. We pray that you would watch over us and keep us safe as we travel this next week. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
Have a happy Thanksgiving, and thank you very much.